Since July 8, 2004, I've been in recovery from drug addiction. Since that day, it's been my mission to understand all I can about the disease which kills so many people and destroys so many lives. Almost everything we know about addiction is wrong. During our podcast, I will reference my favorite books, articles, and stories to help you better understand this complex problem. My name is Stephen Lloyd. Welcome to 70 Times 7. back uh last time we talked uh dad we kind of discussed like an outline of our um our analogy for the biopsychosocial model we called it the slot machine uh and in that we uh we outlined like i just said the bio the biological aspect the psychological aspect and the social aspect All right so what we're going to do now is dive in a little deeper and we're going to talk about our first seven which was the biological aspect so before we start any of the kind of biological aspect to this We've hinted at it before. We've addressed it a few times before, but we can't stress how important this is to understand the difference between addiction and dependence. Lay that out for us. Uh, yeah, that's that's great, Heath. That's exactly what we have to do. I see, I see these terms confused too too many times, and it does make a difference. And the t- the place that I see it being confused all the time is is with babies that are born. And I hear that babies are born addicted, and babies aren't born addicted; they're born dependent. And and you sh- and by the time I get done explaining this, then then most people should be able to see what the difference is and, and understand it. And I think the babies are a good way to look at it. So let's start with dependence. Dependence simply means that when you stop the drug, that a, quote, predictable physiologic withdrawal syndrome occurs. Unquote. Mm-hmm. Now, predictable physiologic withdrawal syndrome sounds complicated, so we all use the term dope sick. So that simply means that whenever you're taking the drug, be it uh, an opioid, a pain pill, or, or alcohol uh, over a long enough period of time, or a benzodiazepine like Xanax, Valium, those type drugs, if you take it over a long enough period of time, then whenever you abruptly stop it, you get sick, i.e. dope sick, a predictable physiologic syndrome. Now, that doesn't mean that you have addictive disease. It means you're a human being. I tell people all the time, I can get Jesus Christ, the Pope, Elvis, it don't matter, uh, dependent in 14 days. All I have to do is give them one of those drugs for a long, uh, an opioid pain pill uh, for, for 14 days in a row. At the end of that 14th day, I stop the medication and the patient gets sick or the person gets sick. Uh, it doesn't mean they're an addict. It means that they're a human being. Now, that process of dependence actually starts at day three of taking the medication. And I think that people need to know that because if you get a prescription from your doctor and you're supposed to be on the pain medication for seven days, at day three, this dependent process has already started. So whenever you stop, even if you're taking it for a legitimate medical reason, you are going to get somewhat sick. Most of the time it's mild and you hardly even notice it, but sometimes it's not. And so that dependence process starts at day three. So our governor, Bill Haslam, last year um, uh, initiated and legislation was passed the first time prescription can't be written for more than seven days, which is absolutely perfect. 
right? Because whenever you get to that seventh day, the dependence process has already started. It hadn't gone too far down the road, but the, the prescribing doc needs to look at it and say, do we still need this medication? Is there a good reason? Is my patient still in this much pain or is there something else that we can do? So that's why we have to understand dependence. Now, the ver- difference between dependence and addiction, addiction is the continued use despite consequences. I've seen a million different definitions for addiction. I've seen, you know, these great big long lists of questions that somebody has to answer whether or not they're determined whether or not they have addiction. And, and for me, I don't need any of that. I'm going to bat about 800 here and I'll take 800 to the track. All I need to know is does the, per, per, does the patient in front of me or the person have continued use despite consequences? If they do, they have addiction. It doesn't have anything to do with the amount. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even have anything to do with being dependent. If you have continued use despite consequences, then you have addiction. And so the example I always give is the second DUI. Okay. The first DUI, you could have been, you know, a woman and not had, you know, not metabolized alcohol like a man or maybe had a little bit too much to drink with dinner. And I'm not saying it's okay, but I'm saying it happens. Right. But getting a DUI in that circumstance does not mean you're a problem drinker, does not mean that you're an alcoholic. Now, what about the second DUI? Now, that's a completely different story. Okay. Uh, number one, the first DUI, it cost you 10 grand for an attorney. Number two, in every state in the United States, you spent 48 hours in jail. And in number three, most uh, places in Tennessee, we take a picture of you and we put it in the busted paper and we shame your rear end by selling it at the mini mart. All right. So those are significant consequences. So when you see continued use despite consequences, we know we have addiction. Now, the real big separator between dependence and addiction is the phenomenon of cravings. Okay. And, and if you, if, if you have cravings, a normal person that takes a pain medication for seven to 10 days, they get done with it. They stop it abruptly. They get a little bit sick. They go through that predictable physiologic withdrawal syndrome, and then they go about their lives. They never experience down the road, the phenomena of cravings. The person with addiction, that is what separates them is the fact that they can get through the predictable physiologic syndrome, i.e. they can get through being dope sick, but then they get down the road, you know, sometimes days, weeks, even months, even a year, and they start to experience a phenomenon of cravings. And that's what separates the two. Okay. So when you talk about cravings, especially in that kind of situation like that, that's kind of like an, that's an innate thing. That's not necessarily something that we can measure. That's just something that we kind of, it's just like, well, I mean, I have this desire to do it. It makes me feel better. All my problems seem to disappear. I want to do that again. So I, cause I want to be, you know, I want to be free of all worries. So can you explain cravings at all? Or is that just something that we're just kind of, eh, that's, that's something we can't explain. Well, you're right about the fact that they just happen. There's, there's no controlling them. Now you can control your response to them, but you can't control having the craving. So the cravings are actually very easy because they're the same cravings that we're talking about uh, whenever we have cravings for food. And there's not a person alive who ever, who hadn't had cravings for food uh, whenever they're hungry. And so we're talking about that same feeling. And we all know that feeling, that feeling in the empty, you know, in the in the pit of your stomach that drives you to get something to eat. And the reason that you experience those cravings is because you have to have food to sustain yourself. And so when you haven't had it in a while, it's your body's way of telling you you need to eat. And what happens in your brain is your brain remembers the experience of eating the last time. And whenever you uh, and it'll actually relive that. So it'll go through and it'll remember the good experience of eating the last time, how good it made you feel. Right. That's a, that's it's a positive reinforcer. And so it drives you to, to, you know, to the end game, which is to get something to eat. So that's cravings and we've all experienced it. And that's the reason for them. Now, the people who are addicted to drugs that have cravings, and I'm going to use pain pills again here, opioid pain pills, their cravings for their drug are 10 times stronger than your cravings are for food when you're hungry and water when you're thirsty. So you think about that. 
You know, I get people all the time when they figure out what I do and, and figure out that I treat pregnant women. They say, Steve, you know, these these women, they just need to stop using drugs. They just need to put it down. Right. Can't they see what they're doing to their baby? And, you know, my response is always like, well, you know, no crap, you know, uh, like I didn't think of that. I th- actually thought of that first, but it doesn't work. And so my response to people like that now is, OK, okay that's fair enough. I agree that they need to stop. I'd like for you to stop eating because it's going to actually be theoretically easier for you to stop eating than it is for them to stop taking their drugs because the cravings for the drugs are so much more powerful than your cravings are for food. And you know how strong that is. I mean, what would you eat at the end of the day when you come home and you're hungry and you hadn't eaten all day? In the south end of a northbound mule. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that that's the point. Now, there's, there's a few things we need to know about cravings. Number one, they're lifelong. So I've been in recovery now for 15 years from opioid pain pills, and I still have cravings, Heath. I had them when I was the drug czar of the state of Tennessee. I have them in my job from time to time. Cravings are lifelong. Uh, uh, number two, uh, cravings uh, la- happen in as little as 33 milliseconds. And that's the time it takes you to blink your eye. And it's so short a time that you're not even aware, uh, you're not even consciously aware that you're having them. So it's very hard to defend yourself against something that you're, that you, you know, that you're not even uh, conscious of. Since cravings happen before you're even conscious of them, Heath, it's a big driver for for relapse because by the time you realize what's going on, a lot of times you already have the substance in your hand ready to go. But at that point, it's too late. So when we get a little further down downstream in, in some of our later podcasts, I'm going to talk about the role of medication in the treatment of opioid addiction, i.e. naltrexone, which is sold as Vivitrol, um, buprenorphine, which is sold as a lot of different brand names, but everybody recognizes Suboxone or Methadone. What those drugs do are hold cravings at bay. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to hold those cravings at bay, remember they're lifelong, they're going to happen the rest of your life, and they happen really, really quickly based on cues in your environment. If you're able to hold those cravings at bay, and cravings being the driver for relapse, then you actually have a chance at not using going forward. And the longer that you don't use, the more you give your brain a chance to recover and you start making better decisions, which we're going to get into right now. Perfect. That's a great segue into that. I was actually going to stop you there and, and kind of shift directions. So, um, like I said, we've talked about that before, but that's one of the more important things to understand in this whole battle is the difference between addiction versus dependence because they are, they are very distinguishable and they need to be, they need to be addressed. Right. So can you tell me why babies are born dependent and not addicted? Yeah. Um, they don't show any signs of cravings. There's not repeated use despite adverse consequences. Absolutely. They don't have the right. brain development to do right. that yet. So babies can't be born addicted because they don't have the, a continued use despite consequences and they don't experience the phenomenon of cravings. Babies are born dependent. Right. And so that's, that's really good. And so that's what I want people to understand because there is a difference uh, between the two. But now when we, you know, we get past what dependence, you know, versus addiction are, we really have to focus on, you know, what is going on in our brain. Right. You know, that's, that's the thing that when people start to understand what we're getting ready to cover, they really start to get an idea about what addiction is and the fact that it's not a moral failure. Right. I'm going to interrupt you there just to say, you know, I'm a little biased. For those of you that know me and him, I give him a little bit of a hard time. I am a little biased. He is my dad. I think he's a great teacher. But the first time I heard this kind of a talk when he talked about the stop and go system of the brain and, and how the brain works when it comes to, you know, the reaction to dopamine and other uh, neurotransmitters like that, I, I I've never heard it explained to me in that kind of way. And it's never been simpler for me to understand. So if you have a hard time with any of this understanding, you know, I have a loved one that's, you know, they're using, I don't understand why this is the easiest and the best lesson you're going to get right here. So go ahead and lead us off into that. Uh, I, I appreciate that, Heath. And it's good to get a compliment from you. Those are hard to come <laughs> by. So, 
So the first thing that I I want to talk about is the limbic system of our brain. And basically, we're going to lay it out exactly like he said, stop versus go. So when you start looking at neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, I don't know who named this stuff, but it's it's almost impossible, you know, to understand the terminology. And so that's why we're going to get rid of the of the of the of the the formal names. And we're going to talk in systems. And so the um, the limbic system of our brain, I want you to think of as the go system. So the limbic the, the main goal of the limbic system is to make sure that our species goes forward in time. It's literally the part of our brain that is responsible for our will to live. I always ask people, how strong is our will to live? What would you do right now in order to live? And I'll tell you, you'll do anything, mm-hmm. right? If we lock this room up that, you know, that you and Sterling and I are in right now, and you got rid of all the food and water, and we sit here day after day, uh, after drinking each other's urine, which I assure you that we would, we're going to be eyeballing each other to see which one of us is the weakest, because that's the one that's getting ready to get eaten first. Mm-hmm. So that's how strong our desire to live is. And so with, with drug addiction, what's so important to understand is this is the part of the brain that's hijacked by the substance. So if now... The main thing, the main goal that I have every day, the main thing I have to have to live is my drug. What will I do to get it? Anything. 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 I'll prostitute myself. I'll steal from others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll leave my kid unattended while I seek the thing that I have to have in order to live. And and I think if we understand it in those terms, because that's that is exactly what happens. If we understand it in those terms, then we can start to understand behaviors. Now. I am not uh, condoning those behaviors, but it helped me when I understood this. So the limbic system of a range is responsible for our will to live. Basically, our species going forward in time. So what does our species have to go forward in time? Number one, uh, we got to live to be reproductive age. And number two, we got to have sex. If we do those two things over a long enough period of time with enough people, our species will continue to go forward in time. All right. Now, in order to live to be uh, reproductive age, there's certain things that we have to do. And those things that we have to do in order to live to be reproductive age have better feel good or we won't do them. So whatever designed us, designed us this way. So what do we have to do to live to be reproductive age? We can have food and water intake, right? Or, or food and fluid intake. Those things have better feel good. If every time we ate or drank, we threw our toenails up, we'd all stop doing it. If enough people stopped doing it over a long enough period of time, then our species would cease to exist. So here's what happens. You get hungry. Uh, your brain remembers the experience you had from last time of eating. You start to get cravings to drive you to that end goal of eating so that you can live in the ultimate goal, live to be reproductive age and then, and then reproduce. So you put a few bites of food in your mouth and just a few minutes after starting eating in the ghost system of your brain, the limbic system of your brain, your body starts to make its own fentanyl, its own heroin, its own oxycodone, its own oxymorphone. They're called endorphins and enkelfins. And those endorphins and enkelfins are released in the reward center of your brain, the ghost system, and it relates to the downstream release of dopamine. And Heath, everybody loves dopamine. Mm. Dopamine is that chemical that's released in our brain that gives us an overall sense of well-being and satisfaction. You know, if, if you would really want to know when your dopamine high is, 2 o'clock on Thanksgiving afternoon, right? You just had grandmama's best cooking, and you're sitting on a couch. Your dopamine stores are really, really flowing, and you're laying there and can barely stay awake uh, uh, to watch football. You're so fat, happy, and satisfied. So that's how this works. So that reinforces us to keep eating so that we'll live to be a reproductive age. Now, does sex feel good? Yeah. Yes. Sex feels good. It's okay to say that. If every time that we had sex, we threw our toenails up, we would stop having sex and our species would eventually die. So the reward system of our brain, the ghost system of our brain is about living to be reproductive age, reproducing and carrying our species forward in time. Now, remember, this is the area of our brain that's hijacked by the drug, in this case, opioid pain pills. And so the goal is not to be lived to be reproductive age. The goal is to obtain the drug so that we can simply live. So we all agree that food, water and sex are good things, right? 
And I don't think anybody has any doubt about that. But there are some instances where food, water, or sex may not be a good thing. And now I'm going to use the stop system of our brain to explain this one. So if you've got these two systems working in yin and yang, stop and go, the stop part of our brain is the frontal lobe of our brain. Literally, the brain matter right behind our forehead. And it has two big goals. It gives us insight and judgment. So we've agreed that food, water, and sex are all good things. I'll give you an instance where they may not be such a good thing. If anybody ever tried to lose weight and my friends out there who listen to this and who've known me for a while knows that, that I spent the majority of my adult life uh, bouncing around weight all over everywhere. A high of 248, uh, usually about the lowest I could ever get was about 215. I actually shot pregnancy hormone into my belly for a month trying to lose weight. Okay. So a couple of years ago, I decided to do this. I decided, and now keep in mind, guys, I'm a trained physician. I decided that I was going to watch what I eat and exercise. <laughs> That's what I came up with. Yeah. Brilliant. And, and, and voila, you know, the, the, the weight started to fall off. I started to get in better shape. I've got really good workout partners that hold me accountable. I try to watch what I eat. And now I've, I've, I'm starting to reach that goal of being in better shape and losing weight. And the reason that I'm able to do this is because I have a fully functioning frontal lobe of my brain that gives me insight and judgment. So the frontal lobe of my brain helps me to make decisions that get me to my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal is to get in shape and lose weight. Now, I work out every morning uh, in, in, in a gym where I live in, in uh, Mount Juliet, and in about an hour, I can burn around 800 calories every morning. And that's a pretty hard workout in an hour. So I come out of that gym and I'm feeling good. I've burned 800 calories. Now, one of the things that I pass during my day uh, is a Krispy Kreme donut. And, and if I have a weakness in the world, Heath, it is Krispy Kreme donuts. Anytime I see them, my mouth starts to water. I start to have cravings, just like people have cravings for drugs. You know, they get, I get triggered by something in my environment. So I've worked out in the morning. I've gotten up at, you know, 530. I've worked out at 615. I'm done. I'm ready for the day. And then I drive by a Krispy Kreme donut. What is the reward system, the ghost system of my brain telling me? Eat the donut. Absolutely. The reward system of my brain is going, hey, Steve, you remember last time you ate Krispy Kreme, how much you loved them, that hot sugar dripping off of them? Oh, my goodness. Right? It's all over me. Now, that's the reward system driving me to that end goal, that end pleasure. But what is really my end goal? To lose weight, get in shape, right? So the frontal lobe of my brain that gives me insight and judgment says, hang on a second, Steve. Uh, each one of those Krispy Kreme donuts are 220 calories and 20 grams of fat, which would be fine, except for you're going to have four. All right, so that's 880 calories, 80 grams of fat. What happened to my uh, hour-long workout? Gone. Completely gone. I completely wasted it. So I can now make an informed decision based on what my end goal is because I have an active and functioning frontal lobe of my brain that gives me insight and judgment and overrides the go system of my brain. So the stop system overrides the wants of my go. That's how, and if you think about it, Heath, that's how we make decisions all day long. Yeah, right. Based, decision. right. Based on what our ends and goals are, risk benefits. That's how we do it all day long. Now, the people at Krispy Kreme, they know all this. Okay. And, and so what do they do? Well, the first thing they do is they blow that hot donut smell out in the, out in the street, right? So they're trying to trigger those cravings in my brain. This is the marketing campaign for every food, uh, you know, food company out there. But it doesn't matter if it's McDonald's or it doesn't matter if it's Coca Cola, where they pour the Coke over the ice to try to stimulate that uh, feeling from the last time you had Coke. They're trying to trigger this reward system response. And the next thing you know, you're standing in line to buy a Coca Cola, right? And, and so it's the same thing with Krispy Kreme. So they're blowing that 
smoke, that, uh, that, you know, that, uh, smell out in the street. And, and if I overcome all this, right. And I'm still able to overcome the smell. Their last line of fence is that dang hot donuts now sign. So they flip that thing on. Right. And so all of these things are built, uh, in to try to trigger people's cravings to remind them how good Krispy Kreme is. And so you wind up talking to the lady at the speaker. Okay. That's how it works every day. So with a fully functioning stop system, frontal lobe, fully functioning go system, reward system, I can make the decision that's going to lead me to get to my goal, which is to lose weight and get in better shape. And so I drive by the Krispy Kreme. And people say, okay, I understand that. I get it, Steve. But what in the world does that have to do with drug addiction? Well, here we go. The frontal lobe of our brain and the reward system of our brain are not neurologically connected until we're 23 years old if we're a woman and 25 years old if we're a man. So anytime I'm in women's jails, I always tell the women, don't date any dude under 25. Why would you? Now, I know you can make that argument about all men, and we'll leave that to the side. Mm. But the reason is, is that they'll be strictly driven by the reward system with nothing in the way of insight and judgment. Very hard to be in relationship with somebody like that who's self-centered and just driven by their own pleasure, right? Would you agree? Absolutely. So, um, and so, you know, wait till they're 25. Uh, it's why kids make bad decisions. It's why parents stay up at night when the 16 year old is out driving because they, they 16 year olds don't have access to the frontal lobe of their brain. They don't have good insight and judgment. So they don't realize that driving the car too fast leads to increased accidents and they could possibly die themselves or hurt someone else. We as parents, we all realize that we have a fully functioning frontal lobe. And so we stay up every night until our kid walks in the front door and now we can breathe again. That's the interaction between the stop and the go. Now, what that has to do with drug addiction is this. Those normal connections between the stop, the frontal lobe and the go, the reward system are arrested in development at time of first drug use. So what that means is, Heath, if I'm sitting here talking to you and you have an opioid pain pill problem and you're 35 years old and I, you're answering questions and you're making some decisions that I just can't understand and I'm getting madder by the second, first of all, I don't need to do that because it's not going to help. I always stop myself and say, Heath, how were you when you started using? Well, Dr. Lloyd, I was 16. Okay. I know that from an emotional and decision-making standpoint, I'm dealing with a 16-year-old and now I can move forward. Now, here's the thing. The frontal lobe actually comes back online. And with a number a, n- a number of years in recovery, the frontal lobe actually has more dense connections with the reward system than somebody who never used drugs. People in long-term recovery actually have better uh, resiliency than people who never had a drug problem in the first place. So we know these connections come back. The problem is it takes about 90 days for those connections to even start to come back. And it takes two years for them to fully come back. And that's why it's so hard to keep people early in recovery, because what is functioning is that reward system. And what is not functioning is the frontal lobe that gives you insight and judgment. So you just talked about the stop and go system of the brain um, and how it it takes time to get the brain back to normal once an individual has been using drugs. So explain a little bit like what that what that process looks like with the help of medication, as well as just general healing. So, so I told you, Heath, earlier that people relapse, they, they, they go back to taking drugs because of cravings, not because they're dope sick. They'll get through being dope sick. They go back because of cravings. And I told you how quick cravings happen. So what medication does, uh, injectable, uh, uh, naltrexone sold, sold as Vivitrol, uh, buprenorphine, uh, sold as Suboxone or methadone, what those drugs do are hold cravings at bay. Okay, until the frontal lobe of the brain can come back online. Uh, there's a PET scan that that uh, will have Sterling put up on the 
uh, on the website that you can refer to that, that illustrates this. And basically what the PET scan shows is that top row of brains are normal brains. And you can see the frontal lobe, which is the top part of the PET scan, that, that how, how lit up they are with red and yellow. That means they're active live cells. And you have to remember what a PET scan is. A PET scan just shows what cells are alive. Basically, you take a sugar molecule, which all cells run on, you inject it into somebody with a little radio tracer on it where an x-ray machine can see it. And then what areas lit, light up are cells that are alive and functional. So that top row of brains are normal brains. You can see it's lit, lit up with red and yellow. The second row of brains are brains that have been detoxed off of drugs for 10 days. So you come into me, Heath, you've been uh, using heroin and I detox you off of heroin for 10 days. I get it all out of your system. You're not dope sick anymore. All right. So Heath, have a good life. And I let you hit the door and I send you back out into the world with that PET scan. Well, what do you see in the way of frontal lobe activity in that PET scan? There isn't any. None. And what's the frontal lobe of the brain responsible for? Inside and judgment. So I sent you back out into the world with all the cues and cravings for your drug use, all the Krispy Kreme donuts out there mm-hmm. with no insight and judgment. How long do you think you last? Not long. Ten minutes. Yeah. The most ineffective things that the most ineffective thing that we do for people in opioid addiction is detox. If we simply detox them and send them back to the street, our success rate will be darn near zero. Now, if you look at that third row of brains, what are you starting to see in the frontal lobe? Not more activity. Yeah, you're starting to see activity. So at three months, you're starting to get a little bit of insight and judgment. And that process comes back fully in about two years. So if we can keep people engaged in the treatment process for a full two years, our long-term outcomes are going to be significantly better than what we're doing right now. And medication is a way to accomplish that. And and this is not made up. This is, you know, uh, provable by PET scans. And the thing about the PET scan that, that you guys will see on the website, this is not new information. This is 1992. And the reference is at the bottom. And it's by Dr. Noah Vocal, who is uh, the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. We've known this for some time. Yet our treatment programs continue to ignore uh, the science that that we already know. And so, Heath, with that, we'll tie up the first seven. So when I look at the first seven and I'm trying to uh, identify whether or not my patient is at risk for addiction, it's easy because all I've talked about to you, to you so far is biology and that's inherited. So the easiest question for me to find uh, to ask to find out if the patient that I'm considering writing this pain pill for is at risk to misuse this uh, pain medication is this one. Tell me about your family history of substance use. And if you've got a family history of substance use, then I know that first seven is on the line. And now I can start to address the other two sevens. That was the bio. Join us next episode as we talk about the role of trauma and how an obesity experiment changed the way we view it. As always, check us out on our website at www.70times7.org. That's 70 spelled out, the letter X, number 7.org. Or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Addiction is treatable, treatment works, and people recover. We'll see you next time.